We pray, Lord, that we are always uh, seeking you, that you are always putting that desire in our heart and the Spirit's working, and that we're seeking you through your Word. And Father, help us to, um, when we think about you, we do that with the knowledge of your Word. You are who your Bible says you are. Uh, when we look at our own life, we view that through the premise of your Word and the way that we are to live to please you and the, the convictions you give us and the um, just all, everything that you work and put together and all that, that will never contradict what your word says. So, Father, we just uh, pray that we are your students and that you, uh, you work through us and you teach us and grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Glad to be back with you all for our second week in our study through the Gospel of John and really our first week in the actual text of John. I know we looked at a lot of cross-references last week and kind of got a 30,000-foot flyover of who the author of the Gospel of John was, what the historical context was, what some of the key themes of the book of John are. But tonight we're actually going to look in depth at a passage from John and hopefully over the next few months we'll be able to work our way through this Gospel and be better acquainted with what God would have us to learn from this portion of the New Testament. Um, As you notice, probably, if you did the homework this week, there were some questions that pertained to the text itself, and there were some questions that were kind of personal in nature. I know there was like some questions that asked, what was your testimony like? Who are some people that you could pray for? And, And so on and so forth. Tonight, for the sake of time and for the sake of just everybody feeling comfortable with interacting with one another, we're going to primarily focus our attention on the questions that pertain to the text itself. Uh, If any of you guys feel led to share something personal, you're always welcome to do that. But I just wanted to make it clear that nobody's going to be put on the spot tonight about testimony or prayer requests or anything like that uh, unless you feel open and sharing that information with the group, okay? Very good. So uh, I think just to get us started tonight, let's look at the passage. Let's just begin by reading the inspired word of God together. And um, we'll begin working our way literally right there from page five in your workbook on through the end of this first chapter. So uh, the way that I thought we could do this just to make sure we're maximizing group participation. um, Let's have three volunteers read. So one volunteer will read verses 1 through 5 of John 1. So can I get a volunteer to read the first five verses? All right. And then a second volunteer, after Lisa finishes the first five verses, I need a second volunteer to read verses 6 through 13. 6 through 13. Cash is going to take that. And then um, who would like to read verses 14 through 18? Round out our passage, verses 14 through 18. You go, all right, good. Maverick will take that. Perfect. So, um, Lisa, take it away with the first five verses, and then Cash and Maverick will follow.
Very good. So thank you guys for your participation and uh, trust everybody was able to follow along through the passage. You'll notice there right off the bat, we have a couple of questions just to kind of set the stage for what we're going to cover in this section of our workbook. And that, that first question reads as follows. Many opinions abound about who Jesus is. What are some of the more common ideas about the identity of Jesus held today that come to mind. So as you thought about this question in preparation for tonight's study, what are some of the ideas that came to mind about who people in your class or in your school might say Jesus is, who people in your um, extracurricular activities, whether it's 4-H or band or athletics, or maybe if you're an adult, people in your workplace environment, what do they tend to say about Jesus? This is a great opportunity to just kind of Kick us off with some open-ended discussion. So who is Jesus according to the world? What are some ideas that are floated around? Everyone's friend. Everyone's friend. That's right. How many of y'all have heard uh, the, the saying that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? That, y'all ever heard that one before? Yeah, it's a pretty common uh, statement made about God or about Jesus as God. What are some other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. That he lived a what? A humble, a humble life. life. Yeah, he lived a humble life. That's that's a common thought, right? He was a, if I could put it a different way, he was just he was just this kind of obscure, uh, anonymous carpenter from the Middle East. What's the big deal, right? That's an idea that's stated about him. What other ideas came to mind? Yeah, Muslims, um, even you could say to a certain degree, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they don't see him as God. They see him as he was a good religious teacher or he was a prophet, but he wasn't actually God himself in flesh. Any other thoughts that you all would want to share? These are all great. This is exactly what I was going for. Not my Right. But they seem to not exist. That he didn't even exist. That he's just kind of a, a, a 
Make believe character. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Mary gets more attention than Jesus, so Mary. Yeah, yeah, Mary for sure um, gets a lot of attention in, in more Roman Catholic circles. So that could certainly be um, a, a common idea about Christ. You know, as I thought about this question myself. I'm a seminary student, so my mind tends to go to the theological side of things. And um, I I was reminded of a survey that gets released every two years. If you've never come across this survey, I would encourage you to do so. It's called the State of Theology Survey, and it's produced every two years by Crossway and Ligonier Ministries. And what that survey exists for is to provide just some common American ideas about God, Jesus, the Bible— Um, human sexuality, so on and so forth. Really, how does America think about core biblical doctrine, right? And in 2020, there were some questions that were given as part of this survey to to several people. They, They pulled tens of thousands of people across the entire nation to try to give a comprehensive understanding of how our nation thinks about God, Jesus, the Bible, and so on. And regarding Jesus, these were the results of that survey. I think you may find these um, alarming. Uh, I think you'll find them also insightful or intriguing because this is, this is really how people in our day think about Jesus in regards to these questions that were asked. So let me share these results with you just to get your minds turning a little bit. Based on the 2020 Ligonier State of Theology survey, 52% of those surveyed said that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So whether it be he was a prophet from God, but not God, or whether he was just a, a deceived, wishful thinking, first century carpenter that taught a lot of good moral practices, but wasn't actually God, that would be kind of everything lumped under that umbrella. 52% believe Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. 55% of those surveyed believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So this particular camp would say, yeah, Jesus, he's deserving of worship. He's a glorious being, but he's not equal with God. He's a a created being. He's a creature. Um, That's an ancient heresy known as Arianism. uh, To this day, continues to be taught uh, in the Jehovah Witness circles as well as in Uh, Mormon circles as well, that that Jesus is lesser than God. He's glorious. Um, He's worthy to be worshipped, but he's really not God himself. He's a glorious created being. Last stat I wanted to share that caught my attention from this survey. And this is, I think, more common, most common. How many of you guys have heard of postmodernism? Y'all have heard of postmodernism. Some of you have. Um, For those of you who don't know what postmodernism is, essentially postmodernism is the belief that there's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such thing as black and white reality. In fact, not only can we not know truth, but it's actually immoral to claim that you can. Because if you claim that you can know objective truth, by definition, you're saying that other people are wrong. And if you say that other people are wrong... In our day and age, you're marked as a bigot or as hateful or as intolerant and so on and so forth. Turn on social media or the news, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about here. But listen to this stat. 64% of those surveyed believed that Jesus 
is one of many ways to God, but he's not the only way to God. And for those of you youngsters that are thinking about going to college someday, this is the prevailing mindset on college campuses. Unless you go to a biblical or Christian-based school, you're going to find this idea that, hey, you know what? Jesus, yeah, he can be your way to God, but he's not my way to God. So, you know, what really matters is what is true for you and what's true for me. And even if our views are completely opposite of one another, doesn't matter because there's no such thing as objective truth. We can both be right in our own belief as long as we're sincere and as long as it makes us happy. 64% hold to a view like that. Over six out of 10 people you find in our society. Jesus is one of many ways. He's not the only way. And as we'll learn from the testimony of the gospel of John in a few weeks, maybe a few months at the rate we'll go, um, we'll find that Jesus himself said, no, I am the only way to the Father because I am God. I am the second person of the eternal God. So just some thoughts to get your minds going. Again, if you've never seen this study, I encourage you, go Google State of Theology Survey, uh, Crossway, Ligonier, you'll, you'll find it. I think they began doing it around 2014, maybe 2016. But every two years it gets released uh, with some updated statistics on some very important biblical and theological questions. Now, the second question um, at the very beginning of our curriculum is something that I'm not going to require a show of hands for, but I really want this to be our overarching thought throughout the rest of tonight and really for the rest of this week. This is the most important question that you and I can answer for ourselves, and it's this. Who do you believe Jesus is? That is the question that gets to the very heart and soul of human existence, because what you do with Jesus will dictate where you spend life after this world. You and I are going to live, to quote from Psalm 90, average lifespan 70 to 80 years, maybe more if, if God is gracious to us, maybe less. But by and large, 70, 80 years on this planet, it's like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. Eternity, though, has no end. It is forever. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate, he's the ultimate point of consideration for you and for me in terms of where we will spend eternity. For those who accept Christ as Lord and Savior, as fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life without sin, died on the cross, bearing God's wrath on behalf of every person who would ever believe in him, that he was raised from the grave three days after his death, and that he ascended into heaven and currently reigns and rules as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, your belief in that reality or your rejection in that reality will dictate where you spend eternity, where I will spend eternity. So again, think about this question in your heart of hearts throughout tonight, the rest of this week, and I pray even for the rest of our lives as well. Who is Jesus? What have I done with Christ? Any questions or thoughts on any of these subjects before we really start getting into um, the text. Very good. All right, well, you'll notice on page five, there is a subheading that is labeled the context. And I don't know if you spent much time reading through this section in addition to the following section that's before 
the passage of Scripture that we're going to be covering tonight. If you didn't, that's okay. We're going to talk a little bit about what's in this section. But if you did, hopefully you had some questions or some thoughts about some of the key themes that undergirds the verses that we're covering here. So as we get into some of those themes, can I get a volunteer to read that first paragraph right under the subheading, the context on page five, and then I'll read the bottom part of page five. Can I get a volunteer for that top paragraph? Perfect. Thank you, Samantha. Although John wrote the prologue with the simplest vocabulary in the New Testament, the truths that the prologue conveys are the most profound. The prologue features six basic truths about Christ as the Son of God. Number one, the eternal Christ is found in verses one through three. Number two, the incarnate Christ as found in verses four through five. Third, the forerunner of Christ as found in verses six through eight. Fourth, the unrecognized Christ is found in verses 9 through 11, speaking with specific reference to his rejection. Number five, the omnipotent Christ, verses 12 to 13. And six, the glorious Christ, as recorded in verses 14 to 18, speaking of his deity. Um, Now, just a few of these terms, in case you you, you aren't aware or familiar with some of these terms. Um, Eternal simply means self-existent, to not have a beginning or to not have an end. Okay, when we speak of Christ being eternal, we're speaking of the fact that from forever, he simply has existed. He has no beginning as God and he will have no end as God. Um, Incarnate, we're going to look at that term in just a few moments and and get into some of the weeds of what we speak of when when we refer to Christ being incarnate. The uh, reference to the forerunner of Christ, that'll be revealed in the text as well. Uh, Forerunner, though, just simply means to come before. So for some of you youngsters, that's what that term is referring to. Unrecognized Christ, referring to him being rejected as the Messiah. We're going to see that theme develop throughout the Gospel of John, uh, particularly in reference to the Jewish religious leaders and um, just lay people as well. The word omnipotent. How many of you guys have heard that term before? Omnipotent. So the word omnipotent or omnipotence, it refers to being unlimited in power, being all powerful. So those verses are going to tell us something about Christ as God having no limitations to his strength, to his power and glorious Christ referring to his deity. Um, Glory refers to 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 somebody being magnified or exalted, um, being celebrated, even we could say. Um, we say give glory to God. We're saying celebrate God, magnify God, exalt God. That's the idea um, of glorious. And we'll see Christ's glory revealed in verses 14 to 18. So now that we've gotten kind of an idea of some of those terms in, in the broader outline of John 1, 1 through 18, let's flip over now to page 6. Again, just laying the foundation 
for some of the key themes of this passage before we get back into these discussion questions. I included a few bonus discussion questions for you guys tonight. So um, I hope you guys are ready to share some thoughts. Let's start with this paragraph right under the subheading, Keys to the Text. So um, who would be willing to read that paragraph? And I'll read the Hebrews 4.15 reference that's contained in that paragraph. And again, this is speaking about the idea of Jesus being incarnate. What do we mean when we say Jesus was incarnate? What is this idea of incarnation that we see laid out in the Gospel of John? We're going to address that right here. So who wants to read that paragraph? Thank you very much. I'll read that really quickly. Um, The writer of the Hebrews says this about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Very good. So um, I have... Two questions here regarding this idea of incarnation. First and foremost, does everybody understand, based on the paragraph we just read together, does everybody understand what the term means right now? So before we move on, we can cover that if there's any questions. Incarnation, it is Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. He took on a human nature. He took on flesh. Okay? He took on a body, he had a human mind, he had a human will, and he had a human soul while still existing as the unchanging, eternal God, the creator of all things who has always existed and will always exist. So when we speak of his incarnation, we're saying that that God, the second person of God, took on a true human nature in everything that pertains to humanity he has as the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. You follow? I know some of these concepts are pretty deep, um, but that's the gist of what is meant by incarnation. And this whole text that we're looking at tonight deals with incarnation, the Word taking flesh, dwelling among us. We'll look at that in more detail in a few moments. But my question first here. You notice there, this might have caught your attention if you were reading carefully. It it notes that, this is MacArthur, that the term incarnation is not used in the Bible. Okay? If you read the Bible, you'll never find the term incarnation used. So my question is this. What does this reality teach us about the value of of extra-biblical language in describing what the Bible teaches? What does this idea of the word incarnation not being used in the Bible teach us about our need or the value 
of using extra biblical language to describe what the Bible teaches. Because you're never going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. You're never going to find the word substitutionary atonement in the Bible. You're never going to find um, the word hypostatic union in the Bible. That's another term that pertains to the relationship between the divine nature and human nature of Christ. So none of those terms are in the Bible, but they are talking about biblical truth. Should we not use the terms? What do you guys think? We'd love to hear some thoughts on that. Oh, that's that's exactly right. It's exactly right. Did everybody understand what Lisa was going for there? That's one of the arguments Jehovah's Witnesses will use against the Trinity too, because they'll say the Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's just a descriptive thing about the Godhead. Right. So. Right, you see the concept in Scripture, but the, the actual term Trinity is, is not there. So the, the, the principle I wanted you guys to, grip, uh, to get grips on first and foremost is this. As long as you can defend extra-biblical language with Scripture, you are okay to use such a term. But it's always important, as we did last week. Remember, we read a lot of commentary from John MacArthur about the Gospel of John, but we always went back to Scripture to make sure what he was saying was actually biblical. And that's what theologians have done throughout church history in regard to uh, some of these terms, incarnation being one of them. It's an extra-biblical term that describes what the Bible teaches about the second person of the Trinity taking on a human nature and entering into time and space as a human being. That is not adding to Scripture. Correct. That is not adding to Scripture. That is just defining something. Correct. Yes. That's a, what, yeah, simplifies it. Because when you, when you get Christian vocabulary, I, I don't have to belabor the point that the incarnation means that the second person of the Trinity took on human nature uh, as the person of Jesus Christ. I can just say incarnation, and that concept already comes to mind, and we're on the same page of what we mean by that, right? We know Scripture references that can affirm that. That is a hotly debated point. Um, I'm under. Now, let me, let me just say this to your to your point and your question. I there's there's different ways of going about answering that question. My conviction on pre-incarnate Christ is that it was the second person of the Trinity appearing as the angel of the Lord in John 12. Um, this, is, this is one of the strongest arguments, I think, for that um, conviction. Explain pre-incarnate Christ. So pre-incarnate Christ uh, is the idea that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he actually appeared to people in the Old Testament, whether it be in a vision or whether it be like, like an actual physical appearance as real as you and me, like with the outer eye. Um, it's, it's the belief that references to the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament um, is a reference to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And one of the strongest texts that I go to, to to back up this belief, I think, is in John 12, 
John 12, 39, I'll start in 38 and go from there. I'll go to another text after that too that just came to mind. But Jesus has just given a, um, basically a foreshadowing of the fact that he's going to be crucified, he's going to be put to death. And John, following that narrative up, says this, Jesus performed many signs before the Jews, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And here's the key text, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So think of Isaiah 6. Nick references that every time he prepares to preach, he prays that God would would touch his lips, cleanse his mouth, just like he did Isaiah Jesus or John is saying that Isaiah saw Jesus in that vision in Isaiah 6. That that, that vision of the temple being filled with the seraphim and, and the um, robe of God extending out throughout the entirety of that temple. Verse 41 of John 12 is saying, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of Jesus. Jesus is that pre-incarnate um, Vision, if you will, that pre-incarnate revelation of God. Another text, this isn't in the New American Standard, but it should be in the ESV and some other translations. Jude, verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. The Greek for the Lord is Jesus, which is the word for Jesus. And um, several manuscript traditions has that rendering um, as Jesus being who Jesus being the one who led out the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. So you've got Jesus in the Old Testament leading out Israel and the Exodus from Egypt. You have Jesus in the Old Testament um, as It pertains to Isaiah seeing him in a vision, speaking about him in prophecy. There's other texts we could go to, but those are two of the more explicit evidences to Wayne's question that uh, there were instances in the Old Testament when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, would reveal himself to his people for the purpose of disclosing divine revelation or um, delivering his people from captivity in Egypt and so on and so forth. Um, so that's a really good question, and I uh, hope, hope it was useful to, to, your, to your question. And hopefully got you guys thinking a little bit too. Very good. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't in my notes, but I always like, uh, I always like good questions. Um, well, let's move on now. We're almost done with this preliminary portion. Uh, you'll see life, light, darkness, key themes in... The text. So uh, there's two paragraphs there, and then we'll get into um, the next discussion question. But I need two volunteers to read. Let's do one volunteer for that first paragraph life, light, darkness. Very good. And then a second volunteer to read the next paragraph. Last paragraph on page six. Sigh. Perfect. All right. Y'all take it away. Life, light, 
Scripture, light, and darkness are familiar symbols. John used the term darkness 14 times, 8 in the Gospel, and 6 in 1 John. However, the 17 occurs in the New Testament, making it almost an exclusive John word. Intellectually, light refers to biblical truth, while darkness refers to error or falsehood. Morally, light refers to holiness or purity, while darkness refers to sin or wrongdoing. Very good. So these are some of the key titles that are used to describe Jesus here in John 1. Um, What are some other titles and terms that John uses in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1 to describe the person of Jesus Christ? So number one on page seven of your workbooks, um, we've talked about light being a reference to Jesus. What are some other terms or other Titles that are being used in this text that you found that are describing Jesus here. Wisdom. The word. You said wisdom. Where was that at in the text? I might have, I might have missed that one. I'll take your word for it. Maybe a different translation. What other? Um, what other terms? So we talked. We said we've hit on word. We've hit on light, possibly wisdom, depending on translation. God. God. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. What other ones do you see there? What's that? Life. Yep, life. That's another one. Glory. Right, it's there. Far greater. Far greater. Yeah, it's it's there. These are all good terms. Very good, guys. Um, I, these are the ones I wrote down. Um, the only ones that we didn't touch, I think. I think we actually probably hit on every one, but um, one of mine: Word, God, Life, Light, Flesh, Full of Grace and Truth. Only begotten Son of God. So um, you guys did a great job there. Um, and again, there were some, some terms and concepts we could uh, give to Jesus in that passage that may not have been explicitly mentioned, but they're still biblical. They're still there. So really appreciate y'all's uh, feedback there. Number two, page eight. And this is an important question. And we could probably spend a whole night on this. We'll try not to, but... What was John the Baptist's role, and why is he significant? I'll just embarrass myself for a minute. When I was about the age of some of these youth, I thought that John the Baptist wrote the Gospel of John. Um, I didn't know much about the Bible at that point in my life. But, um, yeah, in case there's anybody here that thinks John the Baptist wrote the Gospel of John, it's okay. I I used to believe that myself. Um, But he didn't write the Gospel of John. Um, John the son of Zebedee did. But who was John the Baptist, first off? Let's start there as we look at number two. Who was John the Baptist? The one that baptized Christ. That's absolutely right. What else do we know about John the Baptist? Did your hand go up? Jesus' cousin. Yeah. Very good. 
He's a forerunner. He's the one who prepared the way of the Messiah, right? He's Elijah. Yeah, we can talk about that maybe a little bit. Um, Believe from the womb. Yep. He was what? Wild. So he was like you, Phoenix. You cut your hair, though, so you're not quite like John the Baptist. That's more maverick these days. But, uh, yeah, so, okay, so we know who you guys all perfect. Hit the nail on the head. John the Baptist, um, cousin of Jesus, baptized Jesus, forerunner of the Messiah, Elijah. Um, that kind of answers the question, why was he significant? I just want to look at a few texts about John the Baptist just very quickly to kind of, again, take some of these thoughts and these ideas that we've had about John the Baptist and get right back to John or right back to how scripture describes John the Baptist. So the text that I wrote down, let's look at the Old Testament text first. So this is the prophecies about John the Baptist. And it's been well said too by many theologians that John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Now he of course, appears in the New Testament narrative, right? He appears in the gospel records, but the new covenant had not yet been inaugurated because Christ had not yet died. So John's the final Old Covenant or Old Testament prophet that God raised up to prepare Israel, and by extension, all those who would believe that are Gentiles. Um, He sent John the Baptist to prepare those people to believe in the Messiah who was to come. But let's look at two texts really quickly from the Old Testament. We'll do three, actually. I'll read the, I'll read the long one. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. This is cited in Luke 3, 3 through 6. So we won't read the Luke passage. It's just going to be a large reiteration of, of the Isaiah prophecy. But who wants to read Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5 for us? Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. All right, and then um, Malachi 3, 1. That's a short book. Or a short, it's a short book. It's also a short verse. Um, and then my passage, I'll read uh, Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. So go ahead and cash whenever you're ready. Read the passage out of Isaiah. Yeah, so the reason why we know that passage pertains to John the Baptist, again, this isn't just something that we pull out of thin air. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, literally takes that passage verbatim and he applies it to John the Baptist in his gospel in verses 4, 5, and 6. So another important principle. If you ever have any questions about what the Old Testament means, a good place to go right out of the gate is just to go to the New Testament. The New Testament will give you a lot of clarity on what's being said in the Old Testament. Because the Holy Spirit who inspired the Old Testament also inspired the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit often would take passages in the Old Testament and with the human writer, he would allow them to apply that passage to whatever they were writing about in the New Testament. So that's a good um, Bible study tool that you can keep in mind. Nick, take that passage in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I am going to 
Very good. Malachi 4, 1 through 6, really uh, verses, um, really verse 5 is the one that's key here. Uh, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, um, it's very interesting, and this, this is something that a lot of critics of the Bible will use as a so-called contradiction. How many of you guys have heard of the fact that John the Baptist is called Elijah by Jesus, but John the Baptist says that he's not Elijah when he's asked if he was Elijah? Show of hands. Anyone familiar with that? Um, so the key in reconciling that alleged contradiction, first off, I want to show you where John denies that he was Elijah. And then I want to show you where Jesus says that he is. And then I want to show you how you can resolve that because that's, I've done some street evangelism in the past and some smart unbelievers have pulled that out. And actually I didn't have an answer for him at that point. But I want, to, I want to provide you guys with an answer to this issue because it may come up in your witnessing efforts. Um, in John 1, this is a little bit further beyond our passage for tonight, verse 19 and following, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And then they asked him who he was, and then he cites the text from um, Isaiah 40 and verse 23 of John 1, and we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But here's John the Baptist. I'm not Elijah. Well, we'll go over here to Mark's Gospel. Mark 9, verses 9 to 13, we read this. As they were coming down from the mountain... And I believe this is, yep, this is right after the transfiguration that took place. Jesus up there on that mountain with Peter, James, and John. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, but as, uh, just as it is written of him. And then in Luke 3, we find a little bit more... Uh, no, it's not the text I'm looking for there. Yeah, one second here. 
Bear with me here. Matthew 11. I thought I wrote that text down. This is the joy of having the internet to help you out sometimes. Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So different time. Jesus is addressing the question, what do we make of John the Baptist? Is he he Elijah? And Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. So John's being Elijah is not that he's literally Elijah himself, but he came fulfilling the very function that Elijah had in the Old Testament. Just as Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, so also is John the Baptist a prophet of the Old Covenant. And John the Baptist's function is to prepare people for the coming of Christ and to point people to the coming of Christ. And Christ says, if you are willing to believe in me and the scriptures, John the Baptist functions as Elijah for you. That's the way that those texts can be harmonized. Is John the Baptist is not literally Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah as an old covenant prophet. And he functioned in such a way as to prepare people for Christ, to point people to Christ. And if you receive Christ by faith, John the Baptist is Elijah for you and for me. Anyways, I had to throw in the Elijah thing because Nick gave me the, uh, the idea to do so when he, when he threw out John the Baptist as Elijah. Oh, the uh, the set the seder, right for for yeah. the the Passover. For the, yeah, that's it for the Passover. Yeah. They, they set a place for Elijah waiting for. Right. Him, because when Elijah comes, then the signs. Right. So yeah. Yep. Very good. Very good. That's good. Good clarifying perspective there. Does anyone have any other thoughts or questions about John the Baptist before we move to the next question here? Cool. Number three, according to John, now we're back referring to John, the author of the Gospel of John. According to John, how was the arrival of Christ into the New Testament world different from the coming of the law into the Old Testament world? And you notice there right underneath the space for writing your response to that question, there's two texts, one in Romans, one in Galatians. Let's read those passages and just for future reference, if you didn't do so in preparation for tonight, if there's, if there's verses to consider underneath the question, they're there for a reason. Uh, it's MacArthur trying to kind of help us think a little bit deeper about what's being asked there. And uh, I would just encourage you to make sure you take the time to read those passages just because it will help you think a little bit more clearly about what questions are being asked. But um, who wants to read the Romans three nineteen and 20 passage? Thank you. And then the Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, after Amy reads. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Whenever you're ready.
whenever you're ready, Amy. Very good. And in the Galatians text. And what was that? Galatians 3. Verses 10 to 14. So those are two very important texts to kind of help us think through this question a little bit more clearly. What do you think? When we, when we think about Christ coming into the world versus the law coming into the world through Moses, how do we see a little bit of difference between those two things? And, and, and again, think in light of these passages we just read from Romans and Galatians. How did y'all answer this question? That's wonderful. That's very good. Yeah, it's good. So what is so Sai, were you gonna say something, buddy? No, I thought you had your hand up. Does anyone else have any thoughts? I just think that the walls show sin, like you can't correct somebody if there's not a rule in place, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's always a good thing to agree with the Apostle Paul, and uh, both Amy and Lisa have shown some, some agreement with Paul here. And just a few verses down, I'm surprised this wasn't uh, part of the verses to consider, but I mean, I'm, I'm no John MacArthur, so uh, I'm sure there's a reason there. Uh, maybe the editors took it out. But in verses 24 and 25 of Galatians 3, listen to this. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ And here's why, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the the law, as Amy and Lisa both were getting at, the law revealed man's need for a savior. It showed the holiness of God. It showed that there is no possible way in which sinful man can 
put forth perfect obedience to what the law demands, which is exactly what the law demands. You, you know, when Jesus summarized what the law, if you took the whole law into consideration, here's what it requires of man. He says, love God perfectly, love neighbor perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty two thirty six to 40 gets into that um, reference. My friends, there's not a single one of us who's ever done that for a second. None of us have ever loved God perfectly, and we've certainly never loved our neighbors as ourselves. Um, if you think you've done that, then you're, you're, you're deceived. The Word of God makes that abundantly clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, so the law is a tutor. It says, God is holy, you're not, you have no way of pleasing God in and of yourselves, you need a Savior. And what did the law point to? Pointed us to the Savior that was to come, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, through faith in Him, God is just to grant us Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift through faith, so that we're treated by God as if we lived His perfect life. And Christ, of course, at the cross, bearing God's wrath on behalf of the believer... He was treated as if he lived our lives of sin. How many of you guys have heard of the great exchange before? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's ultimately, again, another perspective here on this question. The law revealed our sin. It, it revealed the holiness of God. It revealed our helplessness to earn salvation or earn God's favor in and of ourselves. It pointed to the Savior that was to come. And then Christ came and He said, I'm here. I've kept the law in its perfection. I'm the one that the law pointed to. I'm the author of the law. I'm the eternal God. Believe in me. Be forgiven of your sins. Grace and truth came forth from Christ. That's the idea that John's going for. Does that make sense? That's the gospel, really, my friends. That's... That's really the sum and the substance of what we believe as Christians. God is holy. I'm sinful. I have no way of being made right with God. Christ, the God-man, He perfectly fulfilled the law in my place. He died on the cross bearing the wrath that I deserve for my sin. God gives me His righteousness as a free gift of His grace. And because Christ was risen from the grave, we know Romans 4, 23-25, we know that God received Christ's life, death, and resurrection to satisfy what He requires of us. He's both the just and the justifier of sinners. That's the Gospel. Any other thoughts or questions on that question that we've just covered? All right, going deeper now. I'll, t- I'll read this passage. It's pretty long, but you'll notice there, middle of page 8. To gain a fuller picture of the uniqueness and deity of Christ, read the related passage of Colossians 1, 13 to 20. And as I read this text, here's what I want you to think about. Is it possible to read a passage like Colossians 1, 13 to 20? And come away from that passage thinking that Jesus was just a good religious teacher or that he was just a good moral example or that he was just one of many ways to God or that he was just a prophet to, to, to make revelation of God, but he really wasn't God himself. Can we read this passage I'm about to read and come up with any of those types of responses? That's what I want you to think about 
as I read this text? I hope we all answer that question unanimously. But listen to what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What's the answer to the question? Did he read that passage and just say, yeah, I mean, he's just a good moral example. He's just a prophet. He's one of many ways to God. Is that what the text is saying there? No, right? The passage is like, literally it says that all things were created by Christ, through Christ. They exist for him. He holds all things together. And he's at the very head of the church. This is not some mere moral example here. This isn't just some ordinary human being that's worthy of historical study because people are curious about him. This is eternal God. This is our Lord and Savior. If you're a believer tonight, that is the God-man who redeemed you from your sins. And... Here's really what it boils down to, my friends. And we're going to see this time and time again as we study this gospel record over the next several months. You can say that Jesus was just a good moral example. You can say he was just a prophet. You can say he was one of many ways to God. You can say all of those things. But here's what you've got to do if you say those things. You've got to say the Bible was wrong. Because the Bible in no way, shape, or form indicates that Christ is just some ordinary human being one of many ways to God, good religious, moral example, so on and so forth. You read texts like this, you read the Gospel of John, you've either got to say the Bible's true and Jesus was everything he claimed to be, or that the Bible's just wrong. Yeah, I can see what it says clearly, but I just don't believe it. We're going to see a little bit more about that as we get further on in this lesson, particularly with the C.S. Lewis quote. I hope that was enjoyable for you. In fact, since we're on that topic, let's just read that. Let me read that, that, um, that excerpt. I think this is a good time to, to read that. It's over on page 9. I know we're going a little bit out of order, but I think it's, it's appropriate based on that text we just read in Colossians 1. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. Who, who here knows about C.S. Lewis? I saw some homeschool reading lists, and I'm pretty sure he was on there a few times. So if you don't know C.S. Lewis and you're in homeschool, Uh, and the co-op program here, you're going to know a lot about C.S. Lewis here over the next few years because your your reading curriculum is saturated with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, a 20th century Christian apologist. What did we say apologetics was last week? Anyone remember? Defense of the faith, faith, right? C.S. Lewis was a 
prominent defender of Christianity. He was a very smart man, very creative mind. He had such a great way with words. And here in this excerpt that you had on page nine in your workbooks, John MacArthur is citing C.S. Lewis and essentially saying what we just got done saying. You can't honestly go to the word of God and come away thinking that Jesus was just some ordinary human being. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, in fact. He puts it even stronger than I think any of us have put it so far this evening. From mere Christianity, great work. He writes this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, as we saw at the beginning of our lesson tonight, it's what the majority of Americans are saying about him these days. Just a good moral teacher, just one of many ways to God. Listen to what Lewis continues. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. There's lordship salvation, by the way. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to, end quote. What do y'all think about that? What are you going to say? This is question seven right beneath it. Based on the prologue, Gospel of John, based on Colossians 1, based on what C.S. Lewis just said, how are you going to respond to somebody who claims that Jesus was just a good man, just a wise teacher, just one of many prophets or one of many ways to God? How do you respond to that? Respond to Scripture, for sure. And what does Scripture say about those he notions? Claimed, he claimed to be a lot more than a teacher. He claimed to be a lot more. You can say, that's fine, but don't say the Bible says that he claimed to be those things. He said he did yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. How many of you guys know the passage, John 14, 6? You know, where do I, so it's cash that I'm going to show them Scripture. People ask that question. Here's a key text to go to. It's very easy for everybody to memorize. Some of you may have memorized it already. But this gets right to the heart of this um, issue. Who was Jesus? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right then and there. Think about, think, guys, if Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, think about the audacity of such a statement. Think about the arrogance of such a statement. Don't let anybody try to convince you that Christ was just a good guy. He's either everything he claimed he was or he is the worst human being to ever live because he's deceived billions of people. That's what's at stake here. He's worse than Adolf Hitler if he's not who he claimed to be. Being dead serious, people have based their life on Christ. You either believe Scripture, take it for what it says, take Christ's testimony for what it is, or reject it. But don't claim that Christ 
uh, said that he wasn't anything less than God or anything less than the only way to God. It's important for us to keep in mind. But I love it, Cash. Take them to Scripture. John 14, 6, one of many texts you can use in those sorts of conversations. Well, number four, we've talked about this a little bit. Back on page eight. What does the Bible mean when it refers to darkness? And what does the Bible mean when it refers to light? And there's several scriptures at the bottom. So let's read those scriptures before we answer the question. I'm sure you guys have already done this, but just for our own benefit, let's read them again and be reminded of these truths. I'll take the first one, Psalm 119, 105. Who would like to take Proverbs 6.23? Cash, thank you, buddy. Um, Romans 13, 11 through 14. Sai. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 7. Uh, Phoenix, thank you, buddy. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Oh, thank you. Very good. Okay, let me take the first one. Glad I don't have a physical Bible here. I'd be flipping pages like crazy. I can just tap it right here on my phone. Psalm 119, 105. All right, here we go. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, Proverbs passage. Amen. Romans text. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to, to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we when first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on armor of light. Let us walk properly as the day not revealing the drunkenness. Not the lawlessness, not the lust, not the strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to pull us its lust. Amen. First Thessalonians. For you are a all children of light, children of the day. You are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Uh, verse 7. Very good. Thank you, buddy. And then the first John text. So what do we see there in those passages? From John 1, which we've read together, and from all of those passages from both the Old and New Testament, what, what are some good ways of describing the biblical illustrations of light and darkness? Sin and holiness. Sin and holiness. Yep. Sin, darkness, um, holiness, light. Absolutely. What do you think, buddy? Jesus and the devil. Jesus and the devil. Yeah, God, Satan, good, evil, right? What else? Bible, 
Yeah, we, I think we could say that because because uh, it, it would be like um, like the world system is, is likened to darkness, and that and we know that the world is contrary to um, the things of God. In fact, um, passage slipping from my mind, but it says um, I think it's actually in James eight, James four. You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. Um, so I think absolutely that would be a fair parallel. Yep, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James 4.4. 4. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way of going about that, um, that illustration. Did anyone else have any thoughts about light and darkness? How about obedience to God's commands versus disobedience to God's commands? Really, that's John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. In 1 John, he talks about walking in the light versus walking in the darkness. We walk in the light, we're walking in obedience to God's commandments. If we're walking in the darkness, we're walking in disobedience. Very good. Okay, well, number five, this is a good dovetail from that question. Bottom of page eight. What is significant about the fact that Christ is the source of both light and life? And again, uh, text at the bottom. Um, let's look at them. John eight twelve. I'll take that one just to kick us off. Who wants to take John 9, 5? Maverick? John 10, 28. You want to take it, buddy? Thanks, man. John 11, 25, and 26. All right. And then John 14, 6, which we just read earlier. I guess I recited it. I didn't really read it, but uh, we'll read it again. We'll, say it, we'll state it again. Who wants to take John 14, 6? So I've got it. Thank you, guys. Okay, I'll start us off. John eight twelve. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5. Is that you, Matt? Yes. All right, perfect. Whenever you're ready. Very good. 10.28. Thank you, buddy. And then fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Very good. So Jesus, again, this isn't just John MacArthur saying this. He's not pulling this out of thin air. Over and over again, Jesus, I am the light of the world. Jesus being described by biblical authors as being light, being the source of life as well. Right? John says right there at the beginning of the Gospel of John, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1, all things were made, created through Christ. So he's the source of life, and he's the source of light. Why do you think that's significant? How, how should we react to those truths? And that's what MacArthur's asking in question five. How should we react 
to Christ as the source of light and life. First and foremost, what are, those, what, what are those qualities teaching us about Jesus? Are they teaching us that he's a creature? No, right? He's te- they're, they're, they're showing us that he is what? Or that he is who? I thought I heard God somewhere over there. Right? If Jesus is the sort of li- if he's the source of life, he must have been the one who created life. He must have the power of life itself within himself. Think about this. If, if, if there's going to be one who is the source of all life, he must have life by very definition of who he is. He must be self-existent. He must not depend on anything outside of himself to be who he is. Um, I, I noted this. Since God alone is the source of light and life, as we see in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 and 1 John 1, 5, then Jesus must be God by virtue of Scripture's testimony. So, this is an argument for Christ's deity, right? We say that Jesus is deity. We're saying Jesus is God. Um, but let's think even more practically, okay? So, Jesus is God, okay? We've, we've settled that. So the Bible teaches. What should that do for our lives? What do, we, what do we do with this? Do we just say, that's great, what's for lunch? What's on TV tonight? No, right? Like, it, if Jesus is God, it changes everything. It means that we need to bow before Him in worship. We need to establish all of our life under His right to rule over us as Creator and as Lord. And in Philippians 2, just to kind of add a little bit more to this idea here, listen to what Paul writes. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, referring to what Christ did in his incarnation, his life and his death, for this reason also, God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, here's the reality about Jesus. Because he's God, because of his incarnation, because of everything he did in his life, death, and resurrection, it doesn't matter whether or not somebody acknowledges Jesus as their Lord. He is their Lord by virtue of who he is. And one day every single person will bow to him and proclaim him as such. You and I will someday kneel before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we will say you are who you said you were, and you are everything that you claim to be and that the Bible claimed you to be. You are Lord. The question is, back full circle to how we started tonight, who is Jesus to you? Have you recognized his lordship? Have you bowed the knee to him? Have you received him by faith as your Lord and Savior? Are you walking in obedience to his commands? Do you feel grieved when you disobey his commands? These are important questions for us all to ask and wrestle with. Because my friends, he's Lord full stop. He's Lord whether or not you or I recognize him to be Lord. This changes everything. That's the point of... Christ being the source of light and life. He's God and that changes everything. 
Last question we're going to cover tonight because the final three questions, um, well, I guess two questions, eight and nine on page 10, and the personal response question, those are pretty personal, and um, you're more than welcome to share that um, after we you know, conclude the lesson, but um, they don't really pertain as much to the text. So I wanted to kind of keep this as biblical as we could and not as, as anecdotal as it could be. But number six... What profound truth, this is my favorite one of the, all the questions we've covered, I love this question. What profound truth is expressed in John 1.14, and what are the implications of this for your life? So I'm going to read John 1.14 again, and there are three verses to consider that are noted right underneath question six. So who would like to read those passages? Exodus 25.8. Very good. Exodus 33, 7. Very good. And then verse 11. Will you take verse 7 and 11 of Exodus 33, just kind of bundle it up together? Perfect. I appreciate that. All right, let me, let me read John 1, 14, uh, just because it's referenced explicitly in question 6. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then let's look at those other Old Testament texts as well before we look at the question. Good deal. Excellent. Thank you all for reading and grateful for all of y'all volunteering to read at several points tonight. So how did y'all answer this question? How did y'all think about this question? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. What's going on there between that verse and those passages from Exodus that we just read? What do y'all think? That was good. I think it confirms that Jesus is God because it says the word becomes flesh. So it makes it pretty good that he is God as well. Amen. Amen. That's that's absolutely right. Any other thoughts on that verse and its connection to the Old Testament? Let me ask you this. Back on page seven, did you notice there were some, um, and even on the uh, bottom part of page six, there's some Notes in the margin. Did y'all see those notes? Notice here, and this is a lot of what um, Greg just said, but notice this bottom right of page seven. This are, these are some notes that are correlating to verse 14. Notice what is said here. The word became, emphasizes the eternal, uncreated Christ 
taking on humanity at a specific point in space-time history. So God, right? He is God. The Word of God took on flesh. He was incarnate, right? Now, notice dwelt, though, right below it, bottom of page 7. The word literally means to pitch a tabernacle or a tent. This was a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was built. Okay, so now let's think through let's think through these implications. Let's think through the connection here, okay? In the Old Testament, the Israelites would pitch a tabernacle or pitch a tent where as it were God's presence would dwell in their midst. Well, guys, the second person of the eternal trinity, Jesus Christ, when he took on flesh, he pitched his tent, he pitched his tabernacle in the midst of human beings. And it wasn't a tent that he dwelled in. It was our flesh. God pitching his tent or erecting his tabernacle as it were. It was him becoming us while yet not ceasing to be who he always has been from eternity past. That's the connection here. And when John says, verse 14, that he became flesh and he dwelt among us, he, he tabernacled among us as a real human being, We then likewise beheld his glory, and this glory is, when he says glory as of the only begotten of the Father, he's saying it was glory that only could be manifested if he came from God, if he was God. To manifest the glory of the Father is to manifest the glory of God, which is who the Son of God is, truly God, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus came into the world and he dwelt among real human beings like you and me, taking on a human nature like you and I have, he was manifesting the glory of God and his miracles and his teaching and his authority over life and death and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. That is profound to think about. And it just shows you, I mean... Scripture, I mean, we just read passages from Exodus and they point forward to what Jesus would do. It's a great testimony of the fact that it, Scripture, it synthesizes, it harmonizes so well with itself. And you can see pictures and shadows of Christ all throughout the Old Testament. And it's ultimately revealed in fullness in the New Testament. So this should be a motivation, I think. I wrote down here, what are the implications? Well, I wrote, you know, First and foremost, these realities should drive us to worship and serve God with everything we have. We should be grateful for all that Jesus did. We should be motivated to serve him and give all of our lives for his glory. And then also on top of that, I think it should lead us to read our Bible more. We see this beautiful harmony, Old Testament, New Testament, all these these realities kind of fitting together. I think we should motivate us to study Scripture more so we can see God's glory revealed in the text and be encouraged in our faith in doing so. Well, for so long, I saw, even though I knew they were the Trinity, I separated the three, knowing that, you know, personality-wise, but I guess within the last year, I've just gone through so much healing because I had a dad that was not a good father. And so I like I felt more comfortable approaching Jesus, but now that I'm able to fully see that, like He is God, it's like you can more fully experience the love that He has for you, mm. not only to convict you of your sin, but also 
also, you know, to say to Ricky and you, also to correct you, hmm. or to save you, or to heal you, or Amen. whatever it is that, you know, but by experiencing that, that love, you realize that it doesn't matter what his will is, because you've created this relationship with the Father, so mm-hmm. whatever your will is, is good. Yeah, it's going to be for my good, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's that Romans eight twenty eight reality. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're in Christ, even if you go through crazy difficulties in this life, God and his providence and his wisdom and his power and his sovereignty, he's going to work all that to bring him maximal glory and to bring about your ultimate eternal spiritual good in Christ, your sanctification and preparing you for your citizenship in heaven, which is reserved for all believers. So it's very good to be reminded of that. Amen. Any other thoughts on this question? Any questions that came up through the study? Um, Feel free to share that. Love that, Amy. Love all the, the contributions that have been made tonight as well. The word logos. So the word logos. Um, so I'm not familiar with it pointing to the Old Testament. I'm familiar with it being used as a um, as a Greek philosophical construct that was a term that was used to kind of describe the organizing principle of reality. So in Greek philosophy, there were some who believed that there was this eternal logos, this eternal word, and that word held all of reality together. It was the source of all knowledge. It, it was the sustainer of everything that was. And John is using that concept, that term, under the inspiration of the Spirit to say, that logos, that word, that organizing principle, that source of all knowledge and power, and that, that thing that holds all of reality together... That's actually a person. That's actually Jesus. That's actually the true living God. So that's how I've always heard it taught. And from my own studies, that's what I've um, gathered. But it could refer to um, Old Testament truth. I just haven't studied. I'm just curious because I mean, when it says the word became flesh, mm. if the Old Testament was also referred to that, it would be a way that you could show people like, the word of God is in there because it is God. It is God's word. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, just like the word word is logos in any way. So it, that could very well be um, what was going on there, too, I would say. I mean, that's, that's a fair point, certainly. That's good. Any other thoughts or questions that came up this week? Well, great. Well, um, before I close in prayer, I'm just going to read that truth for today. It's right there in the middle of page nine. Uh, a good little um, closing point of application. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll cover the second chapter in this workbook, covering verses 19 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2. And um, hope that you're being blessed as you read the Word of God and as you think through these discussion questions. Let me read this truth for today, and then we'll close in prayer. There have been many false views of Jesus throughout history, from noble example to political revolutionary. Yet to imagine a Jesus who was not the Savior is as foolish as to imagine a Shakespeare who was not a writer or a Rembrandt who was not a painter. 
His name is Jesus, not because he is our example, guide, leader, or friend, though he is all of those things. But his name is Jesus because he is our Savior. And that's literally what the word, or I should say the name Jesus means. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. So what do you do with Jesus? I leave you with that question that we began with. I pray every person in this room can say in their heart of hearts that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I am resting in his mercy and grace both now and for eternity future. Let us pray and then you guys are more than welcome to stay in fellowship as long as you'd like. Father, what a joy it's been to study your word tonight with these dear men and women of all ages. I'm so grateful that this is a place that is welcoming to families and that no matter one's age or walk of life, all are welcome to study your word and to to enjoy fellowship with one another, to share in the lives that you've given to us. And I pray, Father, that our hearts are full as we leave here tonight, reflecting on the word becoming flesh, your eternal, unique, one-of-a-kind son living that perfect life that we owe to you but cannot live and have not lived, dying on the cross, bearing your wrath on our behalf, being raised victoriously from the grave three days after his crucifixion, signifying that you approved of everything that he did on this earth in his incarnation and that some 40 days after his resurrection, appearing to more than 500 witnesses, he ascended to your right hand and he rules and reigns as our King of kings and Lord of lords, both now and forevermore. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So God, my prayer, and I pray this is the prayer of everyone here tonight is that we would truly know you through faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we would not merely play the game of religion or know all of the right intellectual responses or or have all the head knowledge that we need to, to play church or play Christianity, but God, that we would really truly be followers of Christ, that we would be molded and shaped by your word, that we would be obedient to its commandments, that we would be hungry for righteousness, thirsting for righteousness and holiness, that we would walk in the lightness and not, or walk in the light, not in the dark. Father, I pray for each of these men and women here, all ages, I just pray, God, that they would come to experience a deeper and more intimate relationship with you through frequent studying of your word, through having people in their life who can speak truth to them and show forth your love to them, God. I pray that gatherings such as tonight would be a means to those ends. I pray that you'd grant each of us safe travels as we head out of here tonight and as we look to finish this week strong, as we look to put you on display in the context that you've called us into, but whether it be the home or the workplace or our friendships and extracurricular activities, may we be good and faithful stewards and good and faithful ambassadors of your kingdom, God, and of the gifts that you have entrusted to us. Pray, God, now that as we leave here, our our minds and our hearts would be attuned to your character and to the reality that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all of creation. May we worship him and serve him in a way that's pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.